Hello and welcome to the Spirit Guide Society podcast. My name is Pedro Shanahan. I'm your spirit guide. Tonight in the Whiskey Society, we unveiled the complete whiskey course, a tasting school in 10 classes, recently released by Sterling Publishing, written by this man right here, Robin Robinson. He walked us through the entire book. We did an international flight as illustrated through the education given in this hardback edition. Get a copy for yourself. It really makes the whole whiskey education very accessible for everyone. And it's got really nice pictures. Check it out, Spirit Guys Society podcast. Always remember to enjoy this podcast responsibly. That means do it with a book as opposed to a large group of your most drunk friends. <laughs> Cheers to you. Always good advice. <laughs> oh, wait a minute, what? what? I, I, I didn't get a slow clap. <laughs> but he's author of the recently released Complete Whiskey Course, a comprehensive tasting school in 10 classes, all right? And it's a hard copy edition, and you can purchase this new release tonight, and he will sign it and personalize it for you. You can even whisper in his ear, and he will make up a little poem. Uh, I don't know. Who knows what will happen? But Robin and I, we go way back. You did many, Whiskey yeah, Society many years ago many years when ago. you were first bringing Compass Box yeah, yeah, to man. the world. Yeah. And you helped that brand go from being very, very small to being like the biggest new kid on the block of all the blended scotches out there. Yeah, it blew up. Yeah. And, and thank you, Alexa. They, and now, from there, you've consulted on many different brands. Right. And American craft distilleries as yes. well. Yeah, mostly. Yeah. And that's what you're doing now. Yeah. Yeah, but you wanted to bring this book to market. You've got so much ground to cover. I'm going to kind of let you just okay. roll with it because yeah. I just want to get this class cool. as well. I just want to be a student. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So cool. I'm going to stand over there and, and hang out with Stephanie. And so, okay, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so please give it up for Robin. Robin. Great, great, great. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Can I have that book? Can I actually have the book? Hi, everybody. I'm. I, I, let me tell you. I can't tell you. Um, I can't tell you how privileged I am to actually be di to do something like this, to talk about something that I love, uh, to other people who, who love it just as well. And um, uh, in, in the book, um, I, I kind of I wrap it up in, a, in a, and there's a little encapsulation. Um, so I'm going I'm to read from my own book, right? So that's like hokey as hell. Right? It's riveting, Robin. <laughs> it is, yeah. It could be a phone book as far as we're concerned. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Smith! <laughs> Smith! Um, okay. We stand together, each with a glass of whiskey in our hands. We know its heritage, we know its process and its age, but the glass is empty unless we recognize the space that's between us because it's, that's where the whiskey gets its life, its connection to our past and then us to each other. So make your toasts, and raise your glasses and hold fast those liquid bonds lest they evaporate into the air. And that's my, that's my philosophy about whiskey. And thanks. Um, okay, everyone's got an origin story. Here's how I started. I used to be an actor in New York City and so that means I'm broke all the time and I'm always looking for a gig. And uh, we used to do a lot of private parties back in the 1980s. I mean, there was all that crazy Wall Street money. And um, 
I was hired out from these private parties. All you had to do is come up with a couple different characters and costumes. And if you had some, you know, juggling skills or firing skills, you, know, you were incredibly marketable. And and um, uh, and a friend of mine who does all the booking for them uh, called me up and he goes, "Hey, Rob, I got the perfect gig for you. Um, you're gonna Im- uh, you're gonna uh, uh, impersonate a Scottish distiller." And you're going to walk um, uh, about 40 people through a private dinner. Um, and you're going to uh, pair up the dinner with single malt Scotch whiskeys. Now, this is 1985. Okay. So I had three questions. A, when is the first, when is this going to happen? He goes, well, it's going to be Saturday night. I'm going, wow, that's not much time to prepare. How am I going to learn about everything and he goes the guy who's actually the, the the one of the club members who's doing this is going to get you all of the pamphlets and magazines that you need because of course there was no internet that time right so he drops them off and i said so the second question is how much does it pay and it was like 300 dollars cash which was a 1980 dollars man that was like a fortune and my third question is what's a single malt scotch whiskey i had never heard those four words together before in my life and so in that intervening week um, yeah, working on, on, my, on my Scottish accent here, you know, and the reason he gave it to me because at that time I had a great accent that I stole from the guy on Star Trek, you know, <laughs> which is the only Scot I'd ever knew. And uh, no one even knew what a, a distiller did. And so I had to make up all this backstory and everything like that. Pedro's an actor. He knows exactly how we're, you know, I'm getting into it. Anyway, I get there. Um, it's working. Um, I, um, I, I'm paranoid because I know that someone is going to find me out. If someone finds me out, sees through the ruse, it's going to be the longest four hours of my life. So, um, um, I had this idea. We were going uh, we to end the evening with a 25-year-old McAllen. So think about that. In 1980s, we're going to drink a 25-year-old McAllen as like the last whiskey of the night. And um, as I was reading about McAllen, because I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce this, um, uh, I... Um, I said, oh, they've got a 12 and an 18. So I called up the guy and I said, so do you have an 18 year old there at the bar? And he goes, yeah. I said, good, do this. Take the bottle and uh, take the bottle and pour it into a container and leave it in the kitchen and then fill that bottle up with iced tea, the exact same color as the Macallan, but make sure you take a little bit of it and just pour it in the top just in case anyone smells it and put that right in front of me, in front of my placemat. And throughout, because I heard or I was reading that the Scots were kind of prickly uh, in their in, in their personalities. I figured if I have an attitude and if I'm drunk in an attitude, no one will ask me any questions. And I'll be able to get through the entire night and no one will actually ask any questions. So the entire night I drained um, three quarters of a bottle of iced tea um, uh, in front of everyone. And, and also because I had read that Scots prefer their whiskey um, 50-50 with brunch water. Um, I was drinking it with water, and you can imagine where my, where my kidneys were going at this point. And, um, 
And being an actor, at one point I realized, oh, I know exactly, I got them. I got these people in the palm of my hands. And I can do and say anything, which I did. And um, I, I took one or two sentences from stuff that I read and I just pontificated to any nth degree about whatever that was. And, um, and, and everyone's with me and we're having a great time. And I remember drinking Laphroaig for the first time. And I had, I had no, of course, to me, I'd only read it. So it was Laphroaig or something like that. And I'm sure I messed it up and no one knew any better. And I remember passing the glass in front of my nose uh, for the first time thinking, oh my God, that's, there's something wrong. Nothing could possibly <laughs> smell like this on purpose, right? And so, um, and then I drank it with everyone. And since I'm the expert, uh, you can imagine how I had to mask what was exp happening in my mouth. I just, you know, I was like this and, you know, and I kind of felt the back of my head blow up. And, um, and then we get to the end of the night and it's the 25 year old McAllen. And so I was telling stories that I had made up or kind of stolen from some of the material all throughout the entire night. And one of the things I picked up um, of that, you know, about Scotch and Scotland was that the, the, these are, it's bound in tradition and custom, tradition and custom, tradition and custom. So I'm repeating this over and over and over the entire night. And we get to the end of the night and they pour the 25 year old McAllen for, uh, for, for, uh, for dessert. And I said, okay, you know, before you, be, be, before you drink it, I gotta tell you the story of Clyde McCallan and how this all came about. And I went back to the 15th century barley farmers and, um, and how you actually had to malt the barley first and before you could actually take it to the next step. And that, uh, that means you have to take the barley and you have to soak it in water and drain it and wait for it to germinate. And, um, and uh, all up and down the valley where Clyde lives, all of these barley farmers were starting to really make some really nice whiskey, but he couldn't get it out of the uh, the steep. He would put the water in and drain it and put it in, drain it, and it would just um, it would just get all gloppy. It wouldn't germinate. He'd have to throw it out, and it was batch after batch after batch after batch of him throwing out this you know this uh, soaked barley. So one night um, he had made plans to go over to his friend Angus Belvany's house, you know, later down the road, and um, so he throws the water down onto the um, the barley and then takes off and just gets completely snookered that night and comes back in the middle of the night and he's drunk out of his mind and he goes into where the vat is at and he sees it and he's going, ah, I'm going to have to throw this thing out to, uh, tomorrow and uh, it's, you know, ah, oh, fuck it. And, and then he just takes a leak into the vat and then goes to bed. And then he gets up in the morning, the kids are jumping up and says, pa, 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 the barley germinated. He goes out and the barley germinated. Right, so he goes on to turn that into like the best whiskey that anybody had ever had in that valley. But since the Scots are bound by tradition and custom, right, every time, every time the water goes in there, he gets up in the middle of the night, takes the leak in there, goes back to bed, and McCallan always suddenly it's like you know they're blowing up, right? <laughs> right? Well. Because it's tradition and custom here, you know, he turns that over to his sons and his sons turn it over to their, his son. And this is going all the way down to maybe like the mid 17th century. And at that point, we've got like the age of reason and, and someone figures out, all right, you can't be pissing into the vat here. But out of respect for Clyde McCallan and, uh, and, and the beginning of this great whiskey, we have to do something to honor that. So 
Um, when the malt master would throw the water down onto the vat, uh, everyone would go away and he would spit into the vat um, out of respect and, uh, for Clyde McCallan. And this went on all the way into the mid-1960s until the British government came in and enacted these wide um, uh, hygiene laws and said, you can't be spitting into the vat. So if you go to the McCallan distillery, I'm telling them, um, if you go uh, uh, where, they, where they do the malting, you'll see a little cuspidor on, uh, on the ground. And uh, when they put the water on the, um, uh, in the steep, then you'll see the malt master spit into that cuspidor out of respect of tradition of Clyde McCallan. So I want you all to lift your glasses up and everyone lifts up their glasses. And I say, okay, and the traditional toast is fly the fifth, which means literally three words that never have met each other before. And, um, and I said, now I want you to spit over your left shoulder. Out of and everyone's spitting over their left shoulder and drinking. Um, then they, they, they got to drink it, right? And we had the best time. And then at the end, uh, the deal was in order for me to get paid, um, I had to tell everybody who I was. So um, uh, the, the floor was given back over to me. And it's like a big U-shaped table. And I'm kind of sitting dead here in the middle. And, you know, I had been dropping F-bombs the entire night and, you know, and drinking all this whiskey, figuring, you know, I'm good. No one, you know. And... Um, so at the end of the night, I said, yeah, I've had a great time here at everything you learned about Scotch whiskey is the truth. And the most important thing I want you to take away is the fact that my name's Robin Robinson. I've never even been to Scotland. And oh, by the way, it's after midnight. Happy April Fool's Day. So um, this thing took off uh, from March 31st to April Fool's. And, and there was that dead silence in the room. And then, you know, a couple jaws dropped. And then they exploded in laughter, realizing that this guy had completely just taken them for a ride for four hours. And I got paid uh, cash. And, I, and one guy came over, the guy, the one guy with the kilt came over and gave me an extra 20. And um, the next morning I woke up. And uh, at 10.30 in the morning, I walked over to my local liquor store and I bought my first bottle of Scotch whiskey. And that's how the love affair began. And it was a 20, uh, it was a 12 year old McAllen for the ungodly price of 1995, <laughs> right? So that became this entire obsession that I have. And, uh, and, and it's kind of culminated um, in the publication of this book now. Um, I currently teach uh, the longest uh, running whiskey class in the United States now. I'm in my 11th year in New York City at a place called the Astor Center. It's called Whiskey Smackdowns. So if you're in New York at that particular time, feel free uh, to grab a ticket and come. It's you know, two hours of, of just mayhem and mirth, you know, and we're riffing about whiskey and we're drinking like six whiskeys. And, um, and then uh, from out of that came the, this little event that I do here called the Story of Whiskey, which is sort of like the one hour version of that. And well, I'm doing the class um, about three and a half or so years ago. And one of my students comes up to me, hands me his business card and he goes, I'm an, uh, I'm an editor for Sterling Publishing and we've done books uh, like uh, Clay Risen's American Whiskey and Rye, Bourbon and Rye, and most specifically, um, Kevin Zraeli's Windows on the World Complete Wine Course, for those of you who, are, are, um, who like wine. Um, and Kevin Zraeli's uh, book is the de facto standard on wine. If you talk to anybody in the wine industry, any wine aficionado, they've got that book. It's, excuse me, now sold over 3 million copies. 
and they wanted to someone to write that book for whiskey and he thought you know i might be a the, the candidate for that so that's how this all, the whole thing kind of came about um other writers hate that story because they they go years and years and years trying to get a book deal and they just kind of like walked into my classroom one day and showed up for me uh, i don't know how to write a book i've never written a book before i do a lot of blogging uh, i had a blog back in the early 2000s about whiskey and i used to have a, a group myself called the knuckleheads of scotch and I used to like, you know, chronicle all of our, you know, uh, misgivings about whiskeys back then in the early 2000s. And um, and uh, those people who follow me on, on Facebook know that I'm really quite opinionated by a lot of things as well. Um, but I'd never written a book book before and they had contracted me for 40,000 words um, uh, for this book and not knowing what I was doing um, I handed in my manuscript and I uh, seven months later they only gave me six I took an extra month because I said this is not gonna happen and um, the editor says so Robin I've had um, I've had uh, editor, uh, authors turn in 10,000 fewer words. I've had authors turn in 10,000 too many words. I've never had an author hand me three books when I only asked for one. Um, so not knowing how to do a word count, um, I handed in a 150,000 word manuscript. And, um, and he said, um, you know how much editing this is going to be? And I said, well, because I had talked to Kevin Zraeli on the phone. He goes, don't worry about it. Let them, let them do their job. Just give them anything. And so I said to him, well, isn't that what you do? And he goes, no, read your contract because you specifically told your agent to make you sure you wrote in the, uh, into the contract that you wanted to make sure that you had the final voice in the book. Um, so you're going to do the editing. So I spent the next nine months doing the most brutal thing I've ever done before, which was take all my beautiful words and, 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 and get rid of them. Right. Um, so somehow between them and they were fabulous. I mean, my editors, the photo editor, uh, when you go through the book, you'll see them. It's a magnificent book. I'm incredibly proud of. Um, but they did a great job of kind of guiding me through this process. Uh, I won some arguments. I didn't win some arguments. Um, and uh, and uh, what, I, what I think happened is that I got as much as I could into every sentence um, because I had a lot to say. I mean, I'm a whiskey nerd. I'll, draw, I'll run down any rabbit hole you want on any part of whiskey. And the whole idea was to make this book as accessible and as, um, as, as open as possible so that you know, I guess the metaphor would be this is the swimming pool and this is how you get into the pool and if you want to go over into the deep water then at least you actually have some water wings to, to do that with and so um, everything about whiskey is covered in this book from uh, the history of it, uh, the production of it. Um, uh, I've got one chapter on how to taste, how to smell, um, and there is some really bad information out there about that particular um, a, a subject, a whiskey at home, how to uh, have a collection. Throughout the entire book, I, I'll take labels and I'll, I'll, I'll decode the label and show you exactly what's on the label because a lot of people still is one of the most intimidating things is I have no idea what any of this stuff means. Um, and then, um, yeah. 
40, great, thank you, right? And um, so that's where really where the, kind of the, 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 the book's layout is. And, uh, and the whole idea of this particular tasting is to kind of do that, is to kind of give us a broad understanding of all of the variances of whiskeys in the world. The reason I start out with a beer, because it's always important to remember that this is really what's at the base of this, right? I mean, we st it starts out as grain, but you know, we need the alcohol uh, because we need beer. And beer goes back into our civilization 25,000 years perhaps um, it was the original water of life right and then when um, when we learned how to distill and that distillation came um, probably from somewhere in the the, the Middle Eastern area uh, of, of the world and then came up into the Iberian Peninsula and then into southern Europe into the hands of the monks then we learned that this beer can actually turn into something much more important or, or much more, uh, 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 much purer, but we never thought about drinking it. We never thought about drinking it until maybe um, somewhere around the turn of the first millennium. That's when you see your first brandies pop up in, um, uh, in Europe. And then as the monks, because the monks really are where the, the monks and the itinerant healers, there were a lot of Jewish healers in there and mystics. Um, there were the Christian monks and they were all evangelical all, all the way through Europe. And we went from uh, Aquavita to Udavi to Woda to uh, Ishkabiha to Ushkaba to Ushka to finally to whiskey. And it takes about you know, maybe, maybe 700 years for that, for that progress to actually happen until you know, we have what's in this in this glass and so it's like really miraculous and uh, in the book I mean I'm uh, fortunate with Compass Box I've been around uh, and I, I know a lot of people in the industry and I got access to some of the top whiskey makers uh, in the world and I didn't go looking to find out how big your still and stuff like that we sat down and we had really really great conversations about how what are you thinking about flavor when it gets into that glass and how much of that is cultural influence um, company policy your savoir-faire, um, all of that, you know. And that's to me where really where the water of life really becomes like you know, this magnificent water of life. So the story of whiskey is really about three people, right? The story of whiskey is about the farmer who had too much grain and then the distiller who took that grain, the beer that came out of that and made that actually more valuable than the grain itself. And then the third person in the story of whiskey is the tax man because the tax man in the form of the king or the state or the prince or the government, right, in their uh, unending desire to actually extract revenue from that, made the distiller change and, 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 and um, uh, innovate and do and move and do things they probably would not have done had someone not been chasing them. Right. So those, as a matter of fact, you know, in the, the research I've done, the tax man probably has more impact on the flavor of every whiskey that you're going to taste in the Western world than any other single entity. That takes us to Ireland. That takes us to our first whiskey in the top left. And Irish whiskey was born of resistance. Uh, it was born of an idea where the British wanted to subjugate uh, the Irish. And so they taxed everything that they could do. And um, 
and at one point the Irish said, okay, well, if you're going to tax my barley, my malted barley, we're going to put unmalted barley in there. And that's where we get the, the modern idea of this whole uh, Irish pot still whiskey that's exemplified through the green spot and the yellow spots and the, and, and the, um, um, the, and the red breasts, right? Uh, and, uh, and powers, which I think is probably the closest um, uh, relative to what the old Dublin style um, pot still whiskey used to be like, you know, kind of waxy and, and, and grassy. But what was interesting is that in Ireland, there was actually more single malt being made in Ireland than anything else. The pot still whiskey was very much held by Powers, Rowe, and Jameson in, the, in, in, the, uh, uh, in Dublin in the, from the 1830s all the way up until about the 1910s. But everywhere else was actually, especially up at Bushmills, because they had a grant that they didn't really have to actually change their formula, they were making um, single malt whiskey, just 100% malted barley. And so um, the story behind the Poe Castle, which is your first whiskey, and please feel free just to nose it and taste it as I talk about it. Um, so this was, um, uh, the Poe Castle is really is a castle. It was built by a nice, um, a nice Italian guy by the name of Sean McNamara back in about the 15th century. And, uh, and, and uh, someone like Pedro Shanahan would kind of appreciate that, right? With a combination of like two different culture names, right? Um, but uh, yeah, Sean McNamara, obviously an Irishman, um, uh, owns this castle. And then for a couple hundred years, it laid in disrepair. And uh, a Houston oilman by the name of Ed, uh, uh, Edwin uh, uh, Andrews, uh, he and his wife buy the castle, pump a couple million dollars into refurbishing it. And uh, he finds a barrel of whiskey in the basement. And it is now the oldest. Uh, do you guys have a, have a bottle of that? The original Napoleon, 1951? Ooh, no. No? Okay. So there are some bottles out there. Um, there you know, uh, like well, Dead Rabbit has one. Um, and you're going to find one. Um, um, uh, Reserve 101 in Houston has one. It's the oldest Irish whiskey on record. It's about 36 years old. Uh, distilled in 1951, probably the old B. Daily. And then um, uh, it was bottled in 1986. So he actually creates this brand called Napo Castle based on that. His son takes over and what they do is they actually now do contract distilling in Ireland because there's only three distilleries in Ireland, right? So you've got Middleton down here, you've got Bushmills up here, and then you had Cooley that showed up in the late, uh, in the late 80s, right? So they're making the bulk of whiskey for now, for now. Right, and everybody is either contract distilling or sourcing the whiskey. So Napo Castle actually, and again, single malt means from one single distillery. So they've been actually bouncing back and forth between Cooley and and um, um, and Bushmills up in uh, in Northern Ireland to actually have the malt made. So this is a 12-year-old whiskey. It's a single malt whiskey. Um, the brightness and the 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 the, the verve and the vitality of this tells me that this is probably all first fill ex-bourbon barrels. Um, so they paid an enormous amount of attention to the barreling of this. And as we know in contract distilling in either Scotland or in, um, uh, or you know, blending in Scotland or contract distilling anywhere else, the, the, the condition of that barrel is actually more important than, than, than where it's from. Um, so it's a really lovely, um, and you get all of the kind of like high notes on here. The um, uh, uh, there's a little bit of a fruited honey and uh, and some really nice vanillins that kind of like bounce around on top. 
Um, it, it's really a lovely whiskey as they're 16 years old. Um, as you start getting into their 16 year old, they start adding in a lot more um, uh, sherry barrels as well. So, um, so this is all 100%, thank you. Uh, 100% um, uh, single malt um, Irish whiskey and uh, uh, in Ireland, of course, this is called Ishkabeha, right? The water of life. So, uh, Solange, right? Solange. So, the, it was the monks who, uh, who, who brought us um, whiskey. Um, whiskey was invented in Ireland. That's an argument that um, is always good for a bar, bar fight um, between a Scot and an Irish. And you tell, okay, look, the Irish invented it, Scots, okay, you perfected it, then just duck, get the hell out of the way before you know, bottles start flying. And, um, but yeah, but when you kind of follow history with the Norman invasion and, uh, and where the Celts were at and um, um, where Catholicism was actually um, um, uh, focused, which was in Dublin area, uh, what happened in 1536, um, Henry VIII had actually um, decided that uh, I'm done um, with the Church of Rome and, um, and, uh, and I'm pulling all the support out of the uh, Church of Rome. I'm going to start my own religion, right? And in doing so, he kicked out, he closed up all of the abbeys and he closed up all of the, um, the monasteries and all of these itinerant monks actually you know, went all over Ireland and up into Scotland. And that's when you really start seeing widespread distillation happen as part of farm culture, right? Because when you think about it, these, these areas of religious fervor back in the Middle Ages was what we would today call like an R&D center. Like these guys were, um, they were surgeons and they were doctors, they were pharmacists and they were, uh, you know, they, uh, engineers. Um, and now all of this information is going out into the countryside. And of course, this thing right here, which is the Alembic, right, which is really the basis of this. Now, when you think about this entire machine right here, uh, and this is a machine, which means that this is a manufactured product. And that is different from a fermented product, right? And I've got the big argument out there because uh, in, in my view, there is no terroir in whiskey. It's impossible to have that because I'm taking a fermented beverage and I'm putting it into a metal container and I am cooking it under pressure and I'm changing all of the chemicals in there into something else. Right? And that's been going on for five, six hundred years, right? So terroir ends as soon as I put that in there. What it's replaced by is something called provenance. And provenance takes in the savoir faire of the distiller, it takes in the machinery, it takes in all of the variations that actually happen throughout the whiskey making process. Wine can have a terroir which is really a romantic notion. Think about it. A man standing out in the field and feeling like, okay, everything I'm drinking, I can see the soil and the sun and like, you know, uh, the, the moisture here and, and, and the minerality and, 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 and makes a little bit of sense. And, and wine can actually happen spontaneously. You don't need anyone to make wine, but that's not the case with whiskey. Whiskey is an applied science. Right? It's an absolute purposeful transformation of one thing into something completely else. So the word provenance becomes the, 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 the key factor for how we describe um, uh, the, the, the difference in variances. Right? It's not just the grain. 
right? It's the fermentation. It's the, the, the shape of the still. It's, uh, you know, my boil level in there. You know, if you go up to Brooklotti, they, they're famously slow drip, right? That has a big impact on flavor, right? Then by putting this in a worm, and by putting this in a shell and tube, it's all of that stuff, right? So uh, for me, if I was in a, you know, if I was like working with for a company, I was a distiller and they're going around saying it's all about terroir, I'd say, what, what about me? Right? Word that I have no process in that. And I had a long conversation with Todd Leopold, who's probably the most brilliant guy in the United States on distilling. And, and Todd and I are, are right next to each other on this, right? You sit down with Todd and you listen to him for 15 minutes about just lactobacillus and you know that this is a manipulation. You know, you know it's actually a purposeful manipulation in order to get that flavor at the very end, right? So now we, that brings us to Scotland, right? So Scotland is it? Here's another myth about Scotland: is like these this five, uh, uh, this five regions of Scotch whiskey. This was a 1980s um, a, a marketing program, right? That marketed the whole idea of that Scotch could taste different because it comes from different regions, and they used that to market to a country that didn't know anything about Scotland or regions. Right. And now we have the Internet. Now it's taken hold. And now people think that there's a space side style. And the, 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 the how you actually you know, put um, a um, uh, you put a, a wooden dart into the heart of that is that there is a um, and I don't ha you know, I, when I have a slideshow, I can show it to you. But I have a chart at home that actually shows you how the blenders actually think about scotch whiskey and they don't think about it from a region they think about it in groupings according to style and there's about eight different styles and it looks like a, a metro map for like washington dc right so that this line right here is one style and there's all of these different stops on that and why is that because blends run scotch whiskey blends run the economics of scotch uh, everything about Scotch whiskey is all about the blends. The fact that we're drinking a single malt right now is a relatively recent invention from a commercial perspective that's only about 50 years old. It goes back to about mid-1960s. You know. So uh, most of this, what comes out of a distillery is, um, is meant for the blenders. Um, and so they're making styles that the blenders can use. Now what's really wonderful about what's in your hand right here is that this was so beautifully developed as a really unique single malt. This is Abelauer Abuna. And Abelauer Abuna means of the origin. And of the origin means it's one of the, the whiskeys that are, they are proudly non-chill filtered. So they have not taken any, uh, they haven't liposuctioned the fat out of the whiskey. Um, and, um, this is 100%. So this is made by uh, Abelauer. Uh, Abelauer is owned um, by Pernod Ricard, who also owns Chivas, right? So this is a key component in Chivas blends, right? As they all should be. But this is released as its own gorgeous lineup of single malt. So when you go from the 12, it's primarily ex-bourbon. When you get up into the, is it 18 or 16? 16. Um, when you get up to the 16, then they start bringing a lot more sherry barrels in. 
And in their warehouses, they lay the sherry barrels and the bourbon barrels side by side. So they're actually kind of commingling in the air a little bit. And then what they do is they're doing a beautiful blend at the end when they actually bring these things together uh, in order to create it. But when they get to the Abuna, this is 100%. And those of you who are familiar with this will know, this is the sherry bomb, right? This is the hand grenade of sherry that kind of like pops off in your mouth. Can, yes. Can, Okay, thank you. Can you tell me um, uh, the batch number and the uh, uh, and the proof on this batch? Batch number 64, 59.9%. 59.9, so it is at batch proof. So they'll batch all these together, right? So in bourbon language, what would that actually be called? What? It would be called a small batch, right? So this is one of the, one of the rare Scottish small batches right here, right? Excuse me. Another one would be like David Stewart's tons from uh, uh, from uh, from Belvedere, right? Yeah. So um, so this is a batch, um, highly selected. Uh, Sandy Hislop um, and Colin um, are, are 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 carefully selecting specific barrels at their readiness. That's why you never see an age statement on this, right? So myth number forty nine: age is not really all that important um, as a key determinant of um, uh, of quality. It's a, a slice of the pie. It's a slice of the pie. It's when is the barrel ready? 100% X sherry barrels, unchill filtered at bad strength. It's, this is the only whiskey when I do a, a, a scotch whiskey tasting, it was the only whiskey that I would dare to present after a Lagavulin, right? Cause it's like big, bouncy, fabulous. It is just absolutely great. So when you go from Scotland, over into North America, the first place we're going to land is Canada. And Canada is a, a, is a land of misconceptions about Canadian whiskey. Because I grew up in Pittsburgh, and when you're 16 years old in Pittsburgh, you sneak into a VFW hall because you know the bartender there will be, you know, okay, your kid, you're ballsy enough, okay, I'm going to give you a shot of whiskey. And, um, and then they would actually pour um, a, 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 some like Canadian with like VO, and they'll call it rye. Right. So one of the misconceptions about uh, uh, um, uh, Canadian whiskey is that it's 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 all about rye. That's absolutely not true. Um, uh, in Canadian law, which is completely complex, because you've got ten provinces, you've got a um, you've got a federal law, you've got an excise law, and then you've got a food and drug law. So you've got uh, a whole um, uh, array of laws that every Canadian distillery actually has to kind of like meld them way, their way through. But the words um, rye whiskey um, are actually interchangeable with Canadian whiskey. You can use it uh, almost in, 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 in any interchangeability. And when we had the whiskey re-explosion um, re in, the, in, in the 2000s, um, first it was Scotch whiskey, and we all went crazy about Scotch whiskey, and then here came bourbon, and now it's bourbon's ascendant, and then Japanese was there for a while because it was really exotic, and poor Canadian whiskey was like sitting on the steps of the bus terminal, like smoking a cigarette, like, hey, what the fuck, what happened to me, you know? Um, and that's because it had a bad, wrap uh, because of something called the 111th law. And the 111th law um, specifies that Canadian whiskey can put, 
There's only there's three conditions of Canadian whiskey, right? Um, it has to be distilled less than 95% in, in a still. Um, it has to be for, uh, uh, um, fermented, distilled, and aged in Canada. And it has to be contained in a barrel less than 700 liters for at least three years. So that's the, the musts. The cans of Canadian whiskey is that we can use any kind of enzymes. We can use other things in there besides enzymes. Um, we can put caramel coloring in there and you can put up to 9.09% of any other flavoring ingredient in there. And that became the mustard stain on their tie for many years because all of the low rent whiskeys would extend the economics of what they were making by doing that. And that's where you get the idea of brown vodka or that they're laying a bunch of cheap wine in there. And they did, as a matter of fact. And here's the genesis of that law. The genesis of that law is that it was actually perpetrated by the U.S. government. Now think about the, think about the, 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 the thinking on this. The U.S. government said to Canada, we have an excise tax of all imported uh, alcoholic goods, but because you're our favorite trading partner up there, we're gonna do uh, we're gonna do you one right here. If you put up to 9.09 percent of any other flavoring ingredient in there that comes from the United States, we'll give you um, uh, we'll ease up on that excise tax. And what they were doing. For, for many, many years, they were actually using something called citrus wine. Uh, they would actually get the, all of the old citrus that was pressed for orange juice down here. And then that was actually fermented and then distilled into a wine, added into the barrels, right? And then, you know, what, can, uh, what Canadians do is that they blend one grain after another grain after another grain after another grain. So Canadians start with all of my uh, barley. Um, it gets uh, fermented, distilled, and aged separately. Same thing with my wheat, same thing with my rye, same thing with my corn. And then what Canadians do is they blend. Well, they did the exact same thing with this distilled citrus wine. Now think about the, the American thinking on that. I'm gonna incent you to make a product that's inferior to any other product you're making for yourselves or anywhere else so that you can actually sell it back to me. Right. Think about that. Right. That's how all of the cheap because they didn't do that in Canada when they sold it to everywhere else in the world. They didn't do that either. Only for the United States. So in the United States, Canadian whiskey got this sort of bad reputation. When I first tasted this whiskey, this is Weiser's from. Uh, can I uh, the 18? Yeah. Thanks. When I first tasted this whiskey with Don um, Livermore about six, seven years ago, I, when I had my compass box table right here and he had uh, his whiskey table over there and I said, what do you got? And he goes, oh, I got yeah, we're, we're Canadian whiskey. I'm going, okay, well, let me taste it, right? And then I tasted this guy and my mind was blown. This changed uh, my life forever about Canadian whiskey. Um, this is 18-year-old whiskey, so as we know, it's the youngest whiskey in the, in the bottle. And um, this is all single grain corn, single grain. But what they do and what he does specifically in Canada, something that no one really has gotten to anywhere else, they are the masters of double column distillation. Now we think of double column distillation as either making bourbon or making all the cheap, uh, the cheaper grain whiskeys in Scotland. But what they do with co a, a, a double column distillation is absolutely miraculous. And the whole idea is to clean out very, 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 very specific chemical notes so that he doesn't have 
some sort of a surprise 17, 18 years later in a barrel, right? And then they run it through a pot still. So think about that. Column still to pot still. You know where that came from? A guy named Sam Bronfman, who was not only maybe the smartest whiskey guy to come out of Canada, maybe the, one of the smartest guys in the whiskey industry, right? He owned the Seagram's company all through the 20th century. Sam and then his sons, uh, his son Edgar, um, and um, transformed everything. Fujika Temba in uh, Japan, Seagram's. Willowbrook in Tasmania, Seagram's. Distilleries in Scotland and Ireland and Kentucky, Seagram's. Quality control, double distillation, the whole blending methodology, unbelievable the impact that guy has had, right? So next to the tax man, right? See, and that was all about taxes, because what was he trying to do? You know, he was trying to avoid the government, right? So this is the 18-year-old Weisers. There's no caramel coloring in here. Just, how many people are Canadians here? How many people know a Canadian? You're a Canadian? The nicest guy in the room, right? Right? Canadian? Canadian okay, well, right, you're, they, they won't vouch for you at all. Um, but Canadians, this is a whiskey that doesn't want to wrestle with you. It just wants to please you. It just wants to please you. You know, it's a magnificent, excellent, um, you know, I, okay, I said it. Ready? Smooth. Okay. That's the last time you'll hear that word come out of my mouth. Um, but it, it's, it's beautiful. And um, their rye, like Lot 40 rye, all this is now owned by Pernod Ricard. It's all being distilled all up at um, the... Uh, Hiram Walker plant, which is right across the river from Detroit, and um, and Don Livermore, Dr. Don Livermore is in charge of all the flavor creation, and they're using old Seagram's techniques there, as well as some of the old um, Hiram Walker te techniques as well. At one point, Hiram Walker had the largest distillery in the world in Peoria, Illinois, and um, so uh, those guys, you know, they pumped out a lot of whiskey. You want to read a great book about bourbon? Uh, and um, is a, a book called Bourbon Empire by a guy named Reed Mittenbuehler. And um, uh, it tells this, uh, this story about the dynamic between um, uh, Edgar Bronfman and a guy named Louis Rosensteel. And Louis Rosensteel owned Shenley Distillers. And between the two of them, they actually created the modern bourbon market because they had saved it you know, during Prohibition and afterwards. You know. so, uh, so it's a great follow-up for that. So um, that brings us to the um, uh, United States. And the United States is really the only bourbon, is the only whiskey that actually runs specifically on a mash bill, right? So when you look at whiskey from all over the world, right? All over the world, all of these other uh, whiskeys, every one of them uses Scotland as its spiritual godfather because they're typically based on one single grain, mostly malted barley. Bourbon is the only one that's really based on corn, right? Um, and there's a whole long history about that. I go that in, into that into the book. But we are now in this age of the master distiller, right? Everything's about the provenance and about the transparency and about the production and the, the rise of that one particular person, the distiller. And so when you go to Kentucky, the one word that is frowned upon is the word blender. They still carry the word, the stigma of the word blender as if it was some cheap thing from back in the 1960s and 70s when, you know, when people were drinking Scotch whiskey and then Scotch whiskey kind of went down into the tubes for a while. 
But the guy who makes this whiskey is a guy named Trey Zoller, and he absolutely embraces the idea of being a blender. So during about, there was about a 25 year period all around the world when whiskey just kind of fell into the toilet. Nobody was drinking it. We all gave it up for vodka and wine and lighter spirit and lighter spirits like that. Whiskey was an old man's drink. And so barrel after barrel after barrel just sat aging in these warehouses where they get about four, five, six percent um, angel share over and over and over, getting heavily wooded older and older, right? And so what Trey did, and his father is Chet Zoller, who is a bourbon historian, Trey was buying these barrels for pennies on a dollar, pretty much the, the cost of the barrels, what he was paying for, of these old over-oaked, you know, you're, you know, you've got a heavy angel share on these, uh, 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 on these barrels, and then he was sourcing some lighter, fruitier whiskeys, and he created what we now know as the Jefferson's Profile. Right, the Jefferson's profile, and uh, Trey told me a story. He says one at one point, you know, uh, me and uh, Julian Van Winkle and I, we couldn't give this whiskey away. So think about that statement, right? Right. Here's uh, they've got some. Thank you. They've got these old whiskeys going on right there, and nobody they they can't sell them. Nobody wants to taste them because the whole idea of drinking whiskey was almost foreign to people, right? So now what Trey has done is he's embraced this idea of, um, of blending. And so the, the typical profile is about somewhere around an eight-year-old whiskey right now. And what he originally was doing was sourcing younger whiskeys. And then now he's sourcing younger whiskeys and he's having them made now at a distillery called Kentucky uh, uh, Artisan Distillers. Um, by a really smart young distiller, a guy named Jade Peterson. And they recaptured all of these old stills from early times and from old Forester. I mean, these massive iron, magnificent monstrosities um, that they brought together to actually make a whole new uh, round of bourbon for Trey. And he still uses that, um, he still uses that, um, uh, that methodology of blending uh, a small amount of really old uh, and aged and wizened bourbons with some young, fruity, vibrant ones in order to get his profile. His average age is about eight years now, and this is what he calls very small batch, which of course, as we all know, is not a legal term. So it means whatever the distiller wants it to be. So if I've got a 50 gallon pot still uh, in my apartment in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, I'm making very small batch, right? And if I'm highly selecting maybe six or seven barrels at a time and then blending those together out of a warehouse of hundreds of thousands, that's a very small batch as well. So when you hear that term, it's really about what is the context that the term is actually being done, uh, uh, being said in, right? So it's not legally defined. Um, it's up to the honor and to the brand identity of that particular distillery to actually um, make that determination. So, so again, beautiful, elegant, a blend of bourbons, right? Old bourbons, young bourbons. So he's sourcing them from multiple distilleries. Now, uh, he's now, now, of course, he's been bought, he's been bought by Pernod Ricard. Um, and uh, so we don't really know what the future of that is going to be, but which means typically when it's someone like Pernod Ricard buys you, um, your buying power just went through the roof and they may actually be going into a, a different direction in the future. So 
That brings up the whole idea of the word that many people uh, um, turn away from. And I'm going to bring this back because I worked um, for one of the great ones in the industry. And it's the word blender. The word blender. As soon as people, especially new people coming into the whiskey industry, they hear the word blend, they go back. They, it, 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 it sets off um, the idea of lack of quality. Um, uh, and, and every uh, uh, misnotion uh, uh, in, in that per particular direction. Having worked with Compass Box for so many years, I can tell you, obviously, that's bullshit. Now, where it really becomes bullshit is when you go to Japan. Now, Japan, Japanese whiskey, as you probably know, is about 90 years old. It was a combination of the brilliance of two different men. One was an artist, one was a businessman. One was, one was named Masataka Takatsuru, and he was the artist. One was Shinjiro Tori, and he was the businessman. They came together, they fell apart. They had two completely different visions of what whiskey was supposed to be. One of them went on to found the company that we now know as Suntory. The other one went to go find uh, found the company that we now know as Nika. They are the, the Toyota and uh, Honda of, of whiskey. When you go up to either of their websites or talk to either of them, neither of them recognizes the other. So you can imagine how difficult it was for me to write the Japanese chapter, right? <laughs> what they all agree on, what they all agree on is that in the Japanese understanding of whiskey, there is a triumvirate, there is a hierarchy, and at the top of that hierarchy is not the distiller. At the top of that hierarchy is the blender. The blender calls the shots. The blender is the person who creates. The blender tells production and marketing what they need in order for them to create. The second thing about Japanese whiskey that you need to know is that if you look at it from a Western perspective, you're not going to understand it. So you have to get everything we know about whiskey in the West and set it aside. And remember that whatever is in this bottle is Japanese whiskey and it doesn't matter where it came from. It doesn't matter. Now, all of the export whiskeys that we drank through because we were so thirsty for Hakushu and Yamazaki and Nikas and things like that, they were all made specifically in Japan for export. But the whiskey that they drink in Japan is imported scotch, Irish whiskey, Middleton makes an enormous amount of it, Canadian whiskey, American whiskey that is blended with some of their whiskey and their water and then put out into the market for domestic consumption because they drink whiskey the way we drink wine and beer. It's drank with everything. It's a food, uh, it, it's a food accompaniment, right? And so blending for them is the art. It does not matter where it originates from. Right. There's a lot of these brand new whiskeys right here from Japan. Everyone's asking, well, you know, it's not from here. Who cares? Bullshit. Fuck that. Right. Listen to what the blender is trying to say in that bottle. Then you'll get it. Then you'll understand. And then, hey, I like this one. I don't like this one. Right. There is a sort of a Japanese style. Right. Light, fruity, elegant, top noty. Right. Uh, with the Nikas, you know, they like to throw in a little bit of the bottom note. They're not afraid of uh, smoke up in Yoichi, right? Same thing with Hakashu, right? Um, uh, but yeah, it's really the blender. And the guy who is really that we're talking about right now, can I actually see that Ishiro? 
Yep, thank you. Is this guy right here, and this is the new rock star of Japanese whiskey, Ishiro Akuta. And uh, his uh, grandfather was a distiller of whiskey back in Japan, and then it went through that, you know, that down cycle, and uh, they were left with 400 barrels of his whiskey from the Hanyo distillery uh, and that, that, uh, that Ishido had to buy back from the new owners because they didn't want to continue making whiskey. And he created something that is uh, th this mythical line of whiskeys called the Card Series in which he took those 400 barrels of whiskey and blended them into 54 different versions, each one for a, uh, a card from a deck including the two jokers. That's why there's 54. Right. And the last that I heard, the last full set that was sold on auction went for about one hundred eighty six thousand euro. Right. So these what turned this guy into an instant rock star that enabled him to open up his own distillery called Chichibu, which is right uh, in the mountains uh, uh, north of Tokyo. Uh, and he's got essentially a craft distillery there. They never came to the United States. And why do you think they didn't come to the United States? Probably because we even drink all their whiskey. <laughs> because we're the only country in the world that uses a 750 standard. Now think about that. If I've got a limited amount of whiskey and I am selling like crazy through La Maison de Whiskey in France, all over Europe, why am I going to go through the expense of creating a 750 bottle when I'm already selling, I can sell everything in 70s. That's why we don't get some of the great world whiskeys in the United States because the 750 standard, right? So that was one of the reasons. When he first released his first whiskey, which was a, a three-year-old whiskey, I think it went for about $250 on the shelf, right? Three-year-old Japanese whiskey. Ishiro is the rock star. And what's in your glass right now is called malt and grain. And this is a true world whiskey. Japanese from his distillery, Canadian, Irish, Scottish, American, right? All five in here. And again, what's the whole idea? Is that the blender, the blender is ascendant. It's the blender who creates, the blender who takes you to a whole other journey. So I was talking to Ishido, I said, so what is, what's Chichibu? He goes, I don't know yet. I don't know yet. I'm at the very beginning of the journey. What I do know, it's not gonna be Centauri, right? So yeah, of course, something like Ishido, and now I actually see all of the, um, the other distilleries that are popping up, and we're starting to bring a lot of these whiskeys over that are primarily um, uh, soshu, uh, aged soshu, you know, rice-based like that. So now, um, yeah, you think that's causing, um, you think that's causing Suntory a little bit of heartache? Now, I gotta remember, the biggest selling whiskey in the world, uh, in, in Japan, is called Kakobin and something that doesn't get exported. It's domestic only, Kakobin and Tori, and it's made essentially from whiskeys from around the world that are blended, and you can find it in practically every grocery store. Um, this is a beautiful and elegant, right? Um, it has a little bit of a dark note in here. That's the American and Canadian, you know. Um, little, what's that, five? Great, thanks. Um, so, that's a world whiskey. That brings us into our last whiskeys, and what's interesting is this. So in order, to, in order to distill in the United States, you have to have a, a, a DSP, a Distilled Spirits Producer License, you know, granted by the federal government. Uh, in the year 2000, there were somewhere around 60 of those in the United States. That includes all the guys in uh, the 10 uh, in, um, 
in Kentucky. Um, the, the bottlers, the rectifiers, uh, big ethanol plants like you know Archer Daniels Midland and, and, and things like that. Only 60, right? Now, it's 2020, we just quit counting at 2000, right? So we've had this massive, crazy nuclear explosion of distilling that happened in the United States, and guess what? It spurred the same thing all over the rest of the world. Three distilleries in Ireland, yep, right? We're gonna have 45 of them in the next seven years that we're gonna actually be able to drink their juice. We're getting whiskeys from countries that don't even have a history of whiskey. Right? They willed this out of nowhere, right? And the whiskey that we're drinking right now, can I have, to have that bottle of Elmroot? Whiskey we're drinking right now comes from the land, from India, right? And in India, what whiskey means there is something called IFML, Indian Foreign Made Liquor, which means it is a highly processed, distilled molasses. And then they blend in whiskey, bulk whiskeys and brandies and anything else they can get from other countries. And they sell it in little juice boxes. And that is the poor man's whiskey that is in all over the entire subcontinent of India, right? And then about 20 years ago, Nilkanta Neil Rao, who was the CEO of one of those IFML companies called Amrut, decided that we are gonna make world-class whiskey and they went about creating what's in your glass right now. And in uh, the mid-2000s, um, like the Fusion um, won a massive amount of awards. Um, and what they're doing, they were using the exact same stills that they made for the rum, right? And they converted them and learned. They brought Jim Swan in. They brought a couple other um, uh, consultants in to actually help them make world-class whiskey, and that's what's going on right now. So you've got Amrut right here. This is essentially straight ahead. Their Amrut single malt in Amrut. Remember what I was telling you about, about Angel Share? Angel Share in Bangalore, where this is made, is about 12 to 13 percent a year, right? So their whiskeys come ripe a whole lot sooner than everybody else. The same thing with Kavalon. They're about whoa, hello. They're about the same. Uh, they, they got about the same thing, about 12 um, to 14% um, uh, per year um, uh, angel share on them. So this is Indian single malt. This is made 100% from Indian malted barley, which comes from the, uh, the northern part of India, um, uh, up near the Himalayan border. And um, uh, they, uh, they go through the entire process in Bangalore. They just open up a big expansion uh, of, their, uh, of their distillation. And, um, and so this is a, a, a perfect example. This is all ex-bourbon barrel. You can tell right here um, just by the color of that. Um, it's ex-bourbon barrel. Some of the, you know, they're doing some really wonderful, crazy um, uh, wood experiments right now. Um, uh, Ashok uh, uh, Chokalingam, who is now uh, the new master distiller, uh, has made an enormous amount of uh, um, relationships in Kentucky uh, with Buffalo Trace and Independent Stave, and they're bringing some crazy. They've got the Spectrum, which is like all different types of wood in one barrel that they're doing finishing in. So they're really doing some really fantastic, wonderful experiments in there. Um, and they're indicative of what's going on um, like around the world, right? 
So, um, so that's our tour. That's our, our tour of whiskey, right? Uh, we started in Ireland. We went to Scotland. You know, we hit all of the, uh, the, the six major areas of the world. This is sort of standing in for all of the, the each one of them is a stand in for, you know, the, uh, of their type. But the, the best thing about this is it really kind of opens our thinking up about what whiskey can be, what whiskey is and all the different variations um, uh, that people have and some of the misconceptions that we have. So um, um, I want to thank you all for, for, for showing up tonight. I really appreciate you coming here. And um, uh, I am here I'm, uh, to, to, to sign your books if you like. I'm, I'm absolutely uh, uh, thrilled that you came uh, to, to take a book. And, uh, and I hope you like it. I hope it's, I hope it's valuable for you. Check so, it out. It's a wonderful book. A ton of great information. It really is very comprehensive and very easy to read. It's got wonderful pictures. It's a great coffee table book. I wish I would have had this book when I was a kid. I would have started drinking when I was like seven or eight years old, probably. Um, it's extremely interesting. I'm glad I would have been, been responsible for that. <laughs> we can't go back in time. Yeah. Um, well, let's give it up for Robin Robinson. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you like what you heard, please head over to Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star rating and review. The Spirit Guide Society is a Spirit Adventures production in association with Bitten from the Apple Productions. Special thanks to Tone Mesa for their post-production and audio services. The show is produced by Andrew Apple and me, Pedro Shanahan. Executive producer, Andrew Abrahamson. Be sure to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Spirit Guide SOC. We'll be there to answer any questions you have, share what we're drinking, and more. And if you're still thirsty, you can always find more episodes of the show wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to always drink responsibly. That means don't drink to forget, drink to remember. <laughs> <laughs>